Okay. Um, first, a little bit about the portrait. Um, it, it's the companion piece of the Washington one over there, which is usually referred to as the Athenaeum portrait. Um, both these are from life sittings, um, both by Gilbert Stewart, of course. Um, Stewart never did another likeness of Martha. I'm going to call them, and I don't mean disrespect, because usually the pre you usually say uh, President and Mrs. Washington, or even Mr. and Mrs. Washington. But for this evening, I'm going to call them George and Martha, so it's shorter, and we're not, we won't get confused about which Washington. Um, <clears throat> the portraits arose after Stewart had done the Lansdowne and copies of it, um, which created quite a buzz in Philadelphia. And also, Martha really liked that portrait. <clears throat> and she commissioned Gilbert Stewart to do one, another one of her husband and, and one of herself. Uh, as you can see, they're not finished. Um, the Washingtons never got these portraits. Uh, they were with Stewart when he died in, in 1828. Um, Stewart was notorious at times for not finishing portraits, uh, but he had a special object in mind uh, with these two, I should say more especially with George Washington. Um, he, used, he kept it in his studio and he made copies and made a great deal of money. <clears throat> um, Martha Washington, uh, born Martha Dandridge, her dates are 1731 1802. Um, she did not come from a wealthy uh, planter family in Virginia. Uh, it was usually uh, described by historians as, as respectable. Uh, when she was 19 in 1749, she married Daniel Park Custis, who was one of the wealthiest planters in Virginia. Um, he was 20 years older than Martha at that time. Uh, in seven years, uh, they have four children, and Daniel Park Custis has a heart attack. I'm not saying that there's any linkage here. Uh, he dies. Um, two of Martha's, two of the four children die very early. Um, and they split the estate three ways, Martha and the two children. And it, it's very large. Each of them get 100 slaves and approximately 6,000 acres of land. Uh, this makes Martha one of the wealthiest widows in Virginia. Um, she's usually described as quiet, reserved, uh, a woman who is able to manage a large estate. One biography, biographer of Washington described her as a woman that a man could feel comfortable with. And this is going to tie into George Washington. Um, during the winter of 1757-1758, um, Washington's career, which at that point had been in the um, Virginia militia, uh, fighting the French and Indian War, uh, it had been going very badly uh, for the British and uh, for Washington. Washington leaves um, the militia. He considers his career at that point as a soldier over. Um, he returns to Mount Vernon, which had been the, the estate of his older brother, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence dies, leaves the estate to Washington, and Washington begins to focus inward in terms of how he can make a life for himself as a planter. Um, also, during, during that year, uh, during the winter of 57, 1757-58, Washington becomes very ill. 
Um, he thinks he's dying. His brother Lawrence had died of consumption. Um, this, I guess, makes him f- focus even more on what he might expect out of life. Uh, he finally gets himself to Williamsburg to see a doctor to find out exactly what's happening. And the doctor gives him a relatively clean bill of health and says, no, you're not dying. You have a bad cough. Uh, it's been a very damp winter. You're going to be okay. And immediately, and we all know the feeling, if we get a clean bill of health from a doctor, you feel better. <clears throat> and he decides at this point uh, that he's going to visit uh, Martha Custis at her plantation, which is called, interestingly enough, White House, not too far from Williamsburg. And he goes to see her. Um, he almost certainly knew Martha Washington, uh, the, the, the upper echelons of Virginia society uh, and wealth were not that big in the mid-18th century. Um, he spends a, a day and, and a night at the estate. Um, he visits, as I said, he visits with her. He's probably uh, introduced to uh, Martha's two children at that point. Um, Jackie, who is uh, three, and Martha, or little Martha, as she call, is called, is almost two. Um, he comes back the next week, uh, and by the end of the visit, they are engaged. Um, strange to our ears, but in the 18th century, not that strange. Um, the mari- they postpone the marriage at that point, and we're approximately in uh, March of 1758. And they've obviously talked over the situation. And the marriage has to be postponed because the French and Indian War has taken a different turn. Uh, There's a new minister in England. Um, He wants to renew the struggle with the French. Um, Washington's role in it um, at that point seems that it can really be revived. Um, He leaves uh, for for the campaign. and the marriage is going to be postponed until the following year. In September of that year, we have another very interesting turn of events, and historians have very different viewpoints about this. Washington, on campaign in Pennsylvania, receives a letter from a woman named Sally Fairfax. Um, Now, Sally Fairfax um, belongs to a very wealthy Virginia family in the 18th century. Um, The Fairfaxes have a plantation called Belvoir, which is pretty close to Mount Vernon. Um, Washington's older brother, Lawrence, that I had mentioned, uh, had married a Fairfax. Uh, Washington had spent a good deal of time at the Fairfax plantation. And he was very uh, in awe of that situation. If you know the background of, about Washington, again, it's, it's not too different a background than Martha. It's, he does not come from a very uh, wealthy family. And the Fairfaxes are all of that. Wealth and sophistication and glamour, and Washington is very much taken with it. Um, three of the Fairfax men had been very important uh, patrons in Washington's career. Uh, influence, getting him influence with the governor of Virginia, uh, influence in terms of positioning uh, Washington, um, fighting with the British in the army, 
Um, so he's, Washington is very close to the family. He's even more taken with Sally Fairfax, though. And Sally is married. Um, Sally writes him a letter, and she congratulates um, George uh, on his um, engagement. And it was kind of a very lighthearted letter, and she kids him about getting married and, and, and being a father and that type of thing. Um, Washington writes back. Um, now, let me just indicate that there, there are going to be two letters here between George and Sally Fairfax. We only have the letters from George. Letters from Sally are not extant. Um, the letters were known in the 19th century, in the first half of the 19th century, to historians. Um, they disappear in the second half of the 19th century. Um, historians in the early 20th and mid-20th century begin to doubt their authenticity. Um, if you read the letters, um, they're very um, romantic, they're very flowery, they almost don't sound like Washington. In 1958, however, they turn up, Harvard buys them. Washington scholars look at the letters, they are in his hand, uh, they are authentic. Now let me just read you um, a, a small little excerpt from Washington's response to the first letter that Sally writes him, kind of a very, as I said, a lighthearted letter kidding him about things. He says, you have drawn me, and it is flowery, you have drawn me, my dear madam, or rather, have I drawn myself into an honest confession of a simple fact. Misconstrue not my meaning. Tis obvious. Doubt it not, nor expose it. The world has not business to know the object of my love declared in this manner to you when I want to conceal it. And the letter goes on like that. Now remember, he's engaged to Martha Custis here. Sally's response, and we can only tell from what Washington response to her again, is again very light and, and teasing him about, you know, what, what did you really mean in your letter? And he, he responds that, he, that his letter could not be any plainer. And he goes on to say that he was impatient with the military campaign, which is indeed at that point dragging on and not getting anywhere. And that his time and her time <clears throat> could be better spent playing roles in Joseph Addison's play, called Cato, which was one of Washington's favorite plays, and which was a play in which Sally had acted in, in a Virginia production. So they both knew it. <clears throat> and Washington says that he could play the character whose love is unrequited by the character that Sally played. So you have these two letters, and that's all we have in terms of, of, of that point. Um, and what exactly do they mean? And was there an involvement here? <clears throat> well, let me give you two reasons why I think that they may not have been involved. Um, but again, you're going to have to make up your own minds about this. <clears throat> One is the kind of stylistic method that Washington employed in the letter. The um, it was a time, and some historians have called it an age of sentiment, when feelings were exaggerated, um, when letters would often be characterized by suggestive banter, as I said, exaggerated feelings. Uh, these were almost ritualistic and formulaic 
expressions. So the fact that Washington writes this and in a sense um, is, is playful and, and um, uh, engaging with Sally may not mean what we might think it might mean. The other aspect, and this I think is more conclusive to me, you don't have in the 18th century a secure postal system. <clears throat> if you want to send a letter that contains information that you want to be confidential, <clears throat> you have to be careful. And all kinds of letters, certainly political letters at this point, whether it be in England and America, uh, are sometimes um, uh, gotten into the hands of enemies and published in newspapers. So if, you wanted, if, if Washington is expressing secret feelings to Sally at this point that he doesn't want anyone to know, he would make sure that he got a very trusted messenger and sent the letter directly to Sally. But he doesn't. He just sends them, he sends the letters, those two letters, by a courier going to Virginia. And in both cases, he sends letters to Sally's husband, George William Fairfax. And also, you can tell by Washington's letters that Sally had been telling the family that Washington was writing her. So there's no secret letter involved here. And it, 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 it seems to me that if Washington was really suggesting something that he wanted to be kept secret, he would not have done it in this way. Again, that's my take on it. it it's not conclusive. I would say most scholarly opinion would say, would be against you know, my interpretation of it. In any case, there is nothing more than that. There's going to be later correspondence with Sally Fairfax and the other Fairfaxes, but much later. After the Fairfaxes have gone to England, they remain loyalist during the Revolution. George returns from campaign in, in Chris, on Christmas 1758, and he goes right to White House uh, to visit Martha. And there's a lot of stuff that they have to do. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, almost get to know each other a little better before they get married. Uh, also, all of Sally's estate, um, the land, the slaves, uh, have to be transferred to George because that's Virginia law so states that when, then when a woman marries, her property is transferred to her husband. Um, the wedding takes place on January 6, 1759. There are nearly 40 guests. Uh, including the governor of Virginia. It's a pretty big deal. Um, at 1 p.m., Martha and George enter the drawing room at White House. Martha's gown is ordered directly from London, and she described it as a grave suit of clothes, but actually it's not that at all. Um, the description is uh, stylish yellow silk, ribbons of high sheen pink, and a headdress of white and deep red. Um, George is wearing another a suit also ordered from London, uh, described as the best superfine blue cotton velvet with silk buttons. So it's, 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 it's a rather fancy affair. Um, we don't know, they don't go directly to Mount Vernon. Uh, they spend some time at White House, then Williamsburg, because Washington had been elected to the House of Burgesses while he was in the Army. Then they go to Mount Vernon. Um, I had mentioned that George had begun focusing on Mount Vernon, and he does spend a good deal of money remodeling it, uh, rebuilding the foundation, adding a second story. 
Um, but by White House standards, it's quite small and rustic, almost not too much more than a, than a farmhouse at this point. This is before the later additions of the wings to the houses and that type of thing. We don't know what, what Martha thought of it. Um, perhaps um, she would just uh, live with it. She does bring all of her own furniture from White House and orders additional stuff from England. So she makes the interior uh, her house. Um, there's going to be no other alterations to Mount Vernon, as I said, until 1773. Um, they have 15 really good years at Mount Vernon. Um, Martha seems to have enjoyed the role of, of uh, mistress of the house. She's known as a very gracious hostess. Um, they never have any children. Um, June 1775, as you know, Washington is made commander-in-chief of the army. Um, from that period until um, Christmas Eve 1783, he will be away from Mount Vernon for all but four days. Um, in November 1775, and I think this is really interesting in terms of their relationship, <clears throat> um, Washington's winter camp is in Cambridge, outside of Boston, where the British Army is. <clears throat> and Martha makes the decision that she's going to join George at his winter camp. And that will become a precedent for all of the years of the Revolution, uh, including most notably Valley Forge. And most of those around Washington noted a distinct um, in rise in spirits, cheerfulness, better health when Martha came and spent those winters with him. We don't know how intense their feelings were, whether this was a love match or whether it was a match of convenience for both of them. Martha needed somebody to run the estate. George wanted a mistress of Mount Vernon. But I tend to think that if there was no love at the start of the marriage, there was love formed on those, at that, those times when Martha spent, those winters that Martha spent with him in the army. Um, in 1781, uh, Martha's only living... I, I guess I skipped the point where um, little Martha dies in 1773 uh, from epilepsy. Um, in, let me see now, um, in 1781, Martha's other only living child, Jackie, dies of camp fever. The Washingtons then take the two oldest children of Jackie, who had been married, and raise them as their own children. In 1789, you know, Washington is inaugurated as president. Martha will go living, to live with him in um, New York and then Philadelphia. Um, they don't get back to Mount Vernon until 1797. So from 1775 to 1797, 22 years, they're at Mount Vernon in some kind of regular life for only five of those years. Two and a half years later, um, George dies. Uh, Martha closes off their bedroom and becomes something of a recluse. Um, George, some postscripts to this that I'll go through quickly. Uh, in George's will, you might know he frees, he orders that his slaves would be freed uh, upon Martha's death. 
Um, Martha, however, frees them one year after George dies because she fears that the slaves waiting for her to die might speed up the process. Um, she evidently did not think the same way of slavery, about slavery, that George does. If you know George's views on slavery, they do evolve. Uh, and in the last decades of his life, he's, he's uh, very determined um, that the need to do something about slavery, to end the institution, um, he does what he can, which is to free the slaves of, that he owns, not Martha's slaves. Martha will die only a few years later, and she will leave her slaves um, to her uh, descendants who are relatives. Um, we're never going to know about what their interior relationship was like, because before Martha dies, she, she burns almost all of the correspondence between the two of them. Um, two quick things about Martha's role as First Lady. The first one I think is quite important. <clears throat> the tone of George's administration when he was president was often described by contemporaries as cold, formal, some even thought monarchical. Um, Martha kind of moderates that. She has what is called Friday evening Republican courts, informal gatherings of congressmen, government figures, uh, spouses, uh, in which she dresses modestly and gives her guests lemonade and tea, no wine, as you would find in a French or British court. It's very important in terms of Washington's administration for, for Martha, I think, to have set a different tone uh, to help to kind of moderate things. And Martha also lends her strong support uh, to what is called then the Ladies' Association, uh, which is to um, uh, raise money uh, for the enlisted men in Washington's army. So she plays a bit of a public role, uh, more so than, than, than she's usually given credit for. Okay, questions? <laughs> yeah? In the, in the loose center, there's a miniature portrait purporting to be a child of George Washington's from when he was 18 years old. And the notes in the loose center explanation say that he gave monetary support to the family of this child throughout his life. Did Martha have anything to do with this child, or do you have any idea what happened to this child, or is this news to you? It, it is news to me. I've never, I've never. I mean, there are stories about Washington. There's another story that he had uh, an attachment to a slave, and there was children from it's that. Yeah, but historians don't credit any of this because there's simply no evidence. Um, so I, 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 I can't answer your question. I, I, I've just never seen any evidence of that. Matter of fact, most of the questions about Washington concern whether he was sterile or not, usually dating from the smallpox that he had as a young man. So I don't know. the bay on the Virginia ship of, you know, the Eastern Shore, 
were some of the largest, she had okay. been the largest property holding right. all over the colony. From her first husband, From Custis. First husband. Yeah, death decidedly. She was one of the, not only the wealthiest widows, but one of the wealthiest people in Virginia. Um, Washington, George was no fool. <laughs> uh, she was an eligible, wealthy widow. Um, I've always felt that even if there was something with Sally, um, that Washington did determined that that was an impossibility. And what did he really need to do in a, in a practical sense? Marry a very convivial, wealthy widow. And my understanding was that as part of her property holding, she in fact held the largest number, one of the largest number of slaves in all of the colony, at least at that time. Probably, all told, with she had 100, the two kids had 100 each, that would be 300. It had to have been one of the largest holdings. I don't know, but yeah. okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, apparently, you know, there was a. She was very wealthy. Yes. Like, it was a step down from Martha, as I said. Going to Mount Vernon from White House had to have been a huge step down. <clears throat> Getting to the Stuarts, Gilbert Stuart had a daughter who also made copies of portraits. I've seen one of these. Uh huh. Uh, a partially finished portrait of George, like like this one, owned by. Right. Is there any work of Stuart's daughter within the portrait gallery? No. The, the portrait gallery tries to get, as much as possible, portraits that are life sittings. I mean, if you think about you know, the validity of a portrait, you want an artist painting somebody in front of him. That, that's your best chance of getting an accurate image. Um, so we, ha we do have some copies. Um, if we could um, not have copies, we would not have any. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that like when most people picture Martha Washington, they picture kind of like this, with white hair and old mm. age. And I was wondering, are most is that because most portraits are of her in old age? And are there any of her? There's a real good um, uh, miniature of her. I can't remember who did it. Uh, in her 40s, um, and um, you, you can tell that she was certainly a handsome woman. Mount Vernon um, has reconstructed what they consider to be um, Martha at the time she married George, and I don't believe it's valid. It, it looks like a glamorous woman circa 2009. Um, Martha was always described as, well, she's very small and short, but always kind of plump, um, which in the 18th century was not a negative. <laughs> um, that, that would be an aspect of beauty. Uh, a certain, certainly not, not fat, but a certain plumpness. Um, and she was de her features were delicate. She was small-boned. Um, she fi did fit into small dress sizes, Mount Vernon is right about that, but she didn't, the picture they have is almost, is almost skeletal, and, and that, that runs against all contemporary description of what Martha looked like. Thank you so
it. Okay. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, Women's History Month and our examination of the First Ladies continues next week when Aaron Carlson Mast, who works at Lincoln's Cottage, will come to talk about um, Mary Lincoln. Thanks very much for coming. And thank you so much. Thank you.